you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats underneath in front of you. It'll be projected up behind me as well. Today's message is kind of a mess up, not kind of, it was, it was a mess up on my part, which is why we're not in Colossians this morning. I didn't realize um, that I gave poor Daniel three straight weeks worth of texts to preach last week. So um, if his sermon was an hour and a half, that's my fault. So I apologize. But uh, in order to stay with the different guys we have preaching Colossians, we're going to step out of Colossians for one week. We typically study verse by verse through books of the Bible here if you're new with us. But we're going to be doing a standalone message. This is a message that I've had on my heart for a long time. I've wanted to share it and any, whenever we had an open week. So my mistake now becomes an opportunity, and next week we'll be resuming Colossians. So let me first jump into the backstory of our text, because it's a long passage and the context is very important to understand what's going on in this specific text. There's a man named Jacob, and he'd been working for his father-in-law in exchange for his daughter's plural, um, hands, plural, in marriage. Um, And several times along the way, Jacob's father-in-law, a man named Laban, tricks Jacob, which is intended to show a little bit of irony. If you guys don't read your Bibles with there being character and flavor in it, you're missing a little bit. There's supposed to be some irony in how much Jacob continues to be deceived because Jacob was known as a trickster throughout the scriptures. In fact, his name, loosely translated, actually means deceiver. For various reasons, Jacob feels like it's time to leave his father-in-law's house and to go and forge a life on his own and to take some steps towards leaving. But we see that each time he attempts to leave, he gets roped right back in to the same situation. This took place over a 20-year period of time. So this was a long amount of time that this exchange is going on between Jacob and Laban that we're going to see in our text. And finally, things get pretty hairy, and it's time for Jacob to really step up the heat and make some steps towards leaving. And this time, things seem a little different because it's confirmed by God who tells him in a vision to go and return to the land of your forefathers, the land that we know as modern-day Israel, who would actually be named after Jacob later on in life when his name was changed to Israel. So Jacob does not leave in the most upright way. That's the first thing you're going to need to know to really set the kind of context for our text for reasons that we'll get into. But he takes his family, their livestock, their possessions, and he flees in the middle of the night so there's no chance of him being stopped by Laban or persuaded otherwise to leave after being persuaded multiple times for all these reasons that he continued to stay. And as they're leaving, Laban's daughters come to this realization that Laban may have been a really bad man, but he was a very wealthy man. And as was customary during their time, a very wealthy father would leave an inheritance to his children, a dowry to his daughters. This idea of inheritance is another common theme you see about Jacob that keeps popping up 
throughout his story is squabbling over inheritances. I mean, you think of the whole fiasco of when he uses the stew to be able to steal the inheritance from Esau. His sons try to kill one of his other sons, Joseph, because they don't like the slice of the pie that Joseph was getting and believe that his inheritance was unfair compared to them to theirs. So this pattern seems to follow Jacob, which is what seems to happen when you don't put sin to death, which is one of, going to be one of the major themes in our text today. So one of Laban's daughters, Rachel, realizing that they're fleeing from their father means that they're also fleeing from their inheritance, decides to steal her father's household idols. Um, a household idol would have been very customary during that time. Um, most people were polytheistic. They had many gods. They would have these little statues. Um, when you read, when we get to the text about how she stole them and put them under her saddle, I used to have this idea that idols were basically like the Easter Island heads, right? That they were gigantic. If um, you ever want to see what the idols in the Old Testament looked like, I can't recommend enough to go to Penn University in Philadelphia. They actually have an ancient Near East exhibit where you can see Molech and Baal and Ashtaroth and all the gods that they talk about. And they're typically only about this big. That really shocked me. I was expecting something massive that you bow down to. But they were always made of some kind of precious metal like gold. And most of them had either rubies or diamonds for eyes. So they were very, very valuable. So she steals those as she's leaving, and she decides to hide those idols deep, deep down. And as Scripture is pretty clear on, your sin will find you out. So Laban chases down Jacob and his cohort. And what I want to show you in the story is, when we get to the text here in a moment, the lengths that people will go to to hold on to their sin and to avoid an idol being exposed. Even having an appearance of righteousness in order to save face, but then taking the things that really need to be repented of and pushing them deep, deep down. So I want to take today to show how easy it can be to confess the stuff that's on the surface, but make excuses for the things that we desire to continue to remain hidden from being exposed. And I want to show you two practical things, the impact of hiding on to our idols and the impact it has on our hearts and the joy that we don't have to be afraid like they were in this story. And we don't have to worry about trying to hide our idols or being exposed because we have a gracious and merciful God who desires to cleanse us, desires to restore us, and not a Laban-like figure who's chasing us down in order to punish us and get back at us. So before I dive into their sin, I want to mention that this is a real-life situation here that I think we should be able to identify with. They're dealing with some real-life heavy-duty stuff. Their sin started with a legitimate gripe. Sometimes fears that motivate us and drive us towards sin are born out of actual legitimate fears. And that's the case in this passage. All sin is rebellion against God. But not all is conceived out of the same desire to rebel against God, if that makes any sense. It's kind of like the age-old ethics question, is it wrong to steal bread to feed your starving family? 
Now, I'm not going to try to break down the ethics of that. It's a fun conversation. You could see how people can land on either side of it. But I think we could agree that the person who sinned by stealing a loaf of bread to feed their impoverished family to keep them from starving is a little bit different than the kid who goes to the mall and steals the latest pair of Jordans because they want to have a fly pair of sneakers, right? One... There's some sort of motive behind it that you can understand, born out of legitimate fear. Are they both sin? Yes, but one seems to be born out of legitimacy. My family's going to starve if I don't get this bread. And the other is driven by greed, vanity, or a host of other types of things. And look, I'm, I'm not going to try to answer that ethics question. Mine's far greater than mine. have tried to debate that for years, and it's not my point. I just don't want anybody leaving here saying, pastor said it's okay to steal stuff if I'm broke. Um, That is not the message. I'm not trying to give you excuses for that. You'll see that that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm using it as an example to show that sometimes sin is born out of legitimate fears and legitimate gripes, even though that in itself does not make the sin legitimate. Just look at some of the gripes that Jacob and his wives had, and you decide if you would feel, put yourself in faith in their situation, And you decide if you would feel as if you had a legitimate case if you were in their shoes. In the first three verses, we see that Jacob's co-workers were beginning to turn on him because of his prosperity and how the Lord continued to bless the work of his hands. It says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob had taken all that was our father's, and from what our father's he has gained all of his wealth. Listen to verse 2, this is key. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to your land of your fathers, of your kindred, and I will be with you. In verses 4 through 7, we see that Jacob had been cheated on his wages multiple times. It says, Jacob sent and called for Rachel and Leah into the field where the flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before but that the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all of my strength. Yet your father's cheated me, and he changed my wages ten different times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Then in verses 14 through 17, you see Rachel and Leah struggling with the fact that they've been treated as property in their father's household. It says, then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or hands left for us? Basically, they're saying, we get it. You've been cheated. We're being cheated too. There's nothing left for us either. Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? Meaning like he doesn't even treat us like we're family. He treats us like we're his property. For he has sold us, indeed devoured all of our money. All of the wealth that God has taken away from our father now belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, go ahead and do. So they're struggling with something very real. We also see that they knew that their father intended to cheat them out of their dowry in those verses. And we also see that Laban frittered away all of their future inheritance. I would say, and I think that you would agree, that all of these are legitimate gripes. Put yourself in any of those situations. A boss that without any conversation or consulting with you changes your wages 10 different times and it's always to fit their better good, not yours. 
Every paycheck you get does not actually reflect the hours that you have put in. And then knowing that your coworkers are talking about you and conspiring about you and looking to stab you in the back and conspiring behind your back. So we legitimize the gripe, resulting in justifying the sin resulting in legitimizing the sin, resulting in a lack of conviction over sin, because why would I feel convicted over something that I feel like I have a legitimate gripe about, right? Before I move on, I just want to pastor for a second and tell you that if you're flirting with that, you're playing a really dangerous game with your heart. We're going to see that it goes so much deeper, and they fell so much deeper into their justification of their sins. So if what I'm saying is already striking a nerve, and you know that you're playing with fire, I want to encourage you, cut out the destructive behavior before it goes any further down the path that we're going to see in this text. We see that not only was their sin born out of legitimate gripe, we see that it was born out of legitimate fears. I mean, look at some of the things that they had to fear, and again, by faith, and use your imagination, put yourself in their shoes. Jacob, and where I already read in verse 2, says that he has a fear of unfair treatment. They have a fear of not being taken care of by those who are called to be their caretakers. They have a fear of being left destitute later on in life. They fear for their own safety. In verses 17 through 31, they talk about how he is a harsh man. He legitimately feared for his safety when he was around Laban and the safety of his family. And he feared that his family would be ripped away and taken from him. Look at verse 31. It says, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. So do you think that these issues could create some fear? Again, we're not talking about small things. If you were to read any modern psychology textbook today, and you were to look at the greatest fears that people have, it's the same fears that they were fearing in that text. Do you think that people still fear, hey, what if I'm left destitute in old age? Did anybody here lose their shirt when the stock market fell 10 years ago? Did that affect anybody's retirement? Did fear set in for any of you? Did any of you say, oh man, I've been working my whole life to be able to put this away. What's going to happen to me when I just watch a third of that evaporate in front of my very eyes? When when I'm talking about this stuff, these people aren't just people that lived thousands of years ago. They're dealing with the same kind of stuff that our hearts deal with. They're not any different than we are. Could you see these things creating anxiety? Look, I'm going to be the first to confess to you I've wrestled with anxiety over far lesser issues. I mean, I've wrestled with anxiety over things that were not even issues, just things that I created in my head. And by thinking about it and thinking about it, then you begin to become anxious about it. And I've also wrestled with fear and anxiety over some of these same issues. Have any of these issues ever created fear in you? Fear of working for an unrighteous boss, where when payday comes, it never seems to work out in your favor, and you never seem to get your just due. 
I won't go into detail because it's not necessary, but I remember being in a situation like this where the terms of the game continually got changed. And I was reading through this passage and I remember wetting my Bible with the tears that were streaming down my face as I identified with Jacob in this text. Has anybody ever had a fear of being separated from your family? A fear of getting to the end of your life and not having the means to be able to take care of yourself. These are real things. Are any of you experiencing any of these things right now? If you are, I want to encourage you. God knows your fears. He knows your situation. And he cares more intimately than you could care for these things yourself. But they were in a place where they couldn't believe that. They couldn't see that. They couldn't trust that. So where this passage really goes off the rails is when they begin to take matters into their own hands. If you've ever read the story of Jacob, God had miraculously cared for him in some pretty scary situations. He even wrestles with God at one point in the book of Genesis, only for God to show himself both mighty and gracious at the same time. He vows before God as he's running from Esau, I'm not going to live a life of fear any longer. Yet here he is again, living a life of fear. Rachel and Leah have seen God's miraculous provision for them and the ways that he miraculously provided for their children, but that all seems distant now because of the trial that's in front of them right now that they're facing. And rather than trust God, who had shown up countless times, I just gave you a couple of examples, they take matters into their own hands. Let's look at some of those examples. Check out verses 19 through 21 with me. It says, Laban had gone to shear the sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob resorts back to his life of trickery. If you see a little note in your Bible, there might be a little one next to where it says Jacob tricked, and you'll see that it's actually a little play on words. It's the deceiver deceived is what is happening here. It seems like every time Jacob's back was against the wall, trickery and deception were not too far behind, and he falls back into the patterns of being the same old Jacob that he used to be. Rather than waiting on God, he takes things into his own hands. And Rachel steals her father's idols and puts them under her saddle. This is probably communicating more than we see on the surface. Because first of all, like I said to you before, the idols were made of these precious metals and gemstones embedded in them. So the heart behind that is daddy is not going to care for me the way that daddy said that he's going to. And I'm too impatient to wait for God to take care for me. Even though he said that there is not a sparrow that falls to the ground without him being aware of it. So I'm going to steal these idols that are worth a lot of money so that I can fend for myself. Rather than wait on God, she takes matters into her own hands. Some commentators have also seen this as a way of hedging her bet in case Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not the true God. Just in case the God of Israel is not the true God, I'm going to take these other gods along with me. And it's interesting, sometimes when I'm evangelizing, 
you get the hodgepodge people, right? They're like, man, well, just in case, I'm going to put a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha in here, get a little bit of Confucius, just in case, you know, this way if I get up there, whatever it looks like, I could say I was cool with all of you. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But just in case God does not show up, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And before we look any further into the specifics, now would be a good time to check your heart. Are there areas that you're taking into your own hands rather than trusting in God's means to be able to provide? And here is where we really begin to hit the heart and the heart exclusively for the rest of the sermon. They knew that what they were doing was wrong, yet they still wanted to act with righteous indignation. Look, starting at verse 27, it says, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? Why have you tricked me? And driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and not tell me so that I could have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? Why do you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you've done foolishly. It's in my power to harm you. The God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to do anything to them. Down to verse 31, Jacob answered because I was afraid. But he wants to know in verse 30, who stole my household gods? And now we see that Jacob's just indignant in verse 32. He says, Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live in the presence of our kinsmen. Point out what I have that's yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So there are a couple of words that should key you off. They're repeated in this text that they knew that what they were doing was not righteous. The repeated usage of the term fled and other derivatives of it. Jacob was told directly from the Lord to return to the land of his fathers. But he was not told to do it in a sneaky, underhanded, or deceptive manner. Most of the times when we're fleeing from something, we know that our heart is not right because people whose hearts are right don't have to flee. It tells us in the Proverbs that the wicked flee though no one pursues, yet the righteous stand bold as a lion. And I want to preface this fact that obviously I'm not talking about the term flee like I would be talking about Kurdish refugees or somebody fleeing from an abusive situation. There are some righteous usages of the term, but this is not that. I can identify with this big time. Before I came to Jesus, I used to get myself in a lot of trouble with the law and with some really bad people who wanted to hurt me. And I fled to various places around the country. And you know what I always thought? It's not me that's the problem. It's those stinking New Jersey pigs. They just don't like me because I'm a long hair. They just don't like me because I drive around in a VW. There ain't nothing wrong with that, man. New Jersey's such a police state. We have a cop leading worship here today, which is... If you would have told me that 20 years ago, <laughs> I would have called you a narc. <laughs> but, or I would think, hey, that guy shouldn't be so impatient with me. He should give me a little longer to pay my debt that I didn't plan on repaying anyway. So each time I fled, guess what happened? I brought me with me 
each place that I went. Because the issue was not the things that I thought was the issue. The issues were my heart. And you cannot flee from your heart no matter how hard you try. Doesn't matter how fast you run. That's what the book of Jonah is all about. Even if you try to sail to the opposite side of the world, your heart still goes with you on that trip. But the bigger tip-off that something ain't right in this text is the way that Rachel hides her idols. If something is righteous, and I know it's righteous, check this out. I don't have to hide it. Isn't that cool? I mean, if I feel the need to hide something then I already should know that there's an issue taking place in my heart. If you ever want to do a fascinating study in the Word of God, go look up all the times that the word hidden is used and see just how closely it's tied to there being a physical situation that's actually a heart matter. Just a couple that I wrote down from the Word study I did. Achan hiding the gold from Jericho. Jonah hiding from God by going to Tarshish. The unrighteous steward hiding his talent in the ground. Ananias and Sapphira hiding the amount of their true investment. Almost every time the term hidden shows up in the Bible, it's indicative of the fact that there is some real junk going on in the heart. And we don't have to hide things when we know that they're born of the Spirit. Before I move on, let me ask you, is there something that you're hiding and you know that you're hiding? If so... What's causing you to hide it? What makes you continue to hide it? What are you afraid of that makes you hide it? But here's where the message really began to prick my heart, and it actually becomes pretty convicting if it's not already. They gave the appearance of wanting to be searched. Rachel allows the camp to be searched. Think of what a fraud is going on right here. She allows the camp to be searched for the idols, even though she knew that she was the one who was hiding them. She even allows Jacob, her husband, to make these big grandiose statements. She allows other people to have to go through a situation that she created rather than expose that which she had hidden. And then after the idols do not turn up, she's completely okay with Jacob berating her father for having the audacity to suggest that somebody might have stolen from them. Look at verses 36 and 37. It says, then Jacob became angry and he berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt that all my goods, what you have found any of your household goods, set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. So Jacob is sizzed right here. He's fired up right now. Look at the strength of the terms that he's using. It says that Jacob gets angry and berates Laban. That word berates is a strong term and she sits by idly knowing that the idols that she's allowing somebody else to be berated for or under her saddle the whole time. There's a progression here. Remember I talked about how it started out with a legitimate gripe. It was followed and compounded by a legitimate fear. Fear led to sin. Sin led to fleeing. Fleeing led to hiding. And hiding led to a heart that was calloused enough to not care that others were facing consequences for your 
actions. So before I move on, let me ask you, do you really want to be searched? I'm asking your hearts, man. I'm not going to quiz. You don't have to raise your hands. I'm asking your hearts. Do you really want to be searched, or do you want to live with the appearance of really wanting to be searched? Which is more important to you? There's a massive difference. One just wants to look righteous on the surface. The other genuinely cares about rooting anything that doesn't look like Jesus out of their life. One is satisfied as long as they look passable by their own created standards. The other says with the psalmist, search me and know my heart, O God. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and reveal if there is any false way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I once heard a preacher say that when someone is knowingly hiding something, the last prayer that they want to pray is search me and know my heart, O God, and reveal if there be any false way in me, because they know. If you're sitting here and you'd have a hard time praying that prayer, it's because you know. You already know that you're hiding something. So why ask to be searched so that the hidden things could be revealed if you know that you're already hiding something and refusing to give it up and you're covering the idols like Rachel? So I ask you, would you feel comfortable today The real question. Ask your heart this. Would you feel comfortable today praying that prayer from Psalm 139? Search me. Know my heart, O God. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. Reveal if there's any false way in here because I know that my heart is desperately sick and wicked above all else and who can understand it? And lead me in the everlasting way, Lord. Would you feel comfortable praying that today? Another point that was deeply convicting is they dealt with the surface level stuff but found convenient ways to cover the things that they wanted covered. So Jacob admits that what he did was a little shady. Look back at verse 31 again. Jacob answered and said to Laban, it's because I was afraid. And I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. What could he really say? I mean, he was caught in the act. He couldn't say that he didn't flee in the middle of the night. I suppose he could blame shift, which he did, or he could excuse it, which he kind of did, or he could just try to deny it, but he really couldn't because he was caught in the act. But that's not even the most troubling thing in this passage. When it comes time to search Rachel, she makes an excuse for not allowing herself to be searched and for her idols to be exposed. She says that she cannot get off of the saddle, in her words, because the manner of woman is upon me. She's saying that this is her menstruation time. This would not be a convenient time for me to move and get off the saddle. So basically, she makes this convenient excuse to ensure that she is not searched in a way that will expose the idols that are being looked for. So she's saying, you can go ahead and search but you can't search this area. You can go ahead and look for everything, but just don't look under there. You can search every area except for the area that I have a built-in excuse that keeps you from going any further. The main point that hit me in this text, the point behind this sermon, the point that I want you to consider, we're going to wrap this up in about five minutes, So much accountability can look like this. 
where you can have a thin veneer of accountability but be selective in what you truly confess. Making sure that on the surface it looks squeaky clean even though you know that the inside of the cup might be dirty. Even going so far as to confessing the things that are on the surface. But just like Rachel, keeping the true idols hidden underneath the saddle and not keeping the idols buried under the saddle but not only that, but creating excuses to keep those things from being found out. I've encountered countless examples with this. I remember meeting with a pastor friend of mine one time, and we were having a time of accountability about our home lives. And with tears in his eyes, he shared with me that he had an argument with his wife earlier that day and resulted to manipulation in order to win the argument. And I thought, wow. What a man of God. How many times have I done that? Yet this man's just so broken over his sin, only to find out that he was having an adulterous affair with multiple women. I mean, why confess the one thing when you know that there's bigger stuff going on in the heart? Was it to make me think higher of you? Or was it to make him think higher of himself because he knew deep down that he was hiding something that needed to be exposed? I've met with church planters and I've asked them, how's your walk with Jesus? And they tell you, oh, the church is growing. You can't find a parking spot when you pull into this place, man. We baptized more people than Pentecost last week. We're adding staff to the church every 15 minutes. But they leave out the fact that they're on the brink of divorce at home and their kids hate Jesus because they have an abusive father that comes home that misrepresents their Lord. I could keep going, but hopefully you get the picture. On one hand, saying, search me. But on the other hand, knowing that you have true idols hidden underneath the saddle and you have a built-in excuse that keeps people from pressing any further into those areas. So they remain there, buried under the saddle. And in the process, the heart grows harder and harder. And conviction begins to grow more faint. And the excuses begin to mount up and accumulate. Why would people living under grace ever feel the need to do this? That's what I want to ask you, brothers and sisters. If Christ forgave all your sins, if he said it's finished, there's a difference between sins and sin. Christ paid for all of your sin completely. So why would I be afraid of some individual sin that I'm holding on in my heart? If he was able to forgive all of it, How could he not forgive that thing that I feel like I have to continue to push down underneath the saddle? So let me ask you, have you stumbled into this? The examples don't have to be huge like the ones that I just named. It can be as simple as avoiding a group of people or a situation. And when people say, hey, where have you been? You just say, oh man, you know life. Busyness has really gotten a hold of me, but it's really just that you have a resentment against somebody in that group and you're being too immature to go and deal with it. So you just push it down underneath the saddle. Or it could be the age-old asking for prayer, but it really just being a sanctified way of complaining about someone or something. And it looks holy. I'm asking for prayer. But really, it's just so that I could push that grumbling and complaining deeper down under the saddle. Or leaving a church and saying, this is because of a theological issue. Or it's because I wasn't being fed at this church any longer when the reality is 
there were relational issues that you were harboring that kept you from being able to worship there unhindered. Let me just come out and ask your heart directly, are any of you doing this? Is the Holy Spirit exposing this to your heart right now? You know that you've been acting like everything is fine in your spiritual walk, but really there's stuff that's just buried underneath the saddle, and the excuses keep mounting as to why you would not deal with it, but you'd rather go on seeming fine than deal with the sin underneath the sin underneath the sin underneath the sin, so it stays hidden underneath the saddle. Now keep in mind that Laban was going to kill whoever it was discovered. He says it right in verse 32. If you find anything, take them out, wipe them out in front of everybody. He made that very clear. So I'm not excusing their actions, but I understand why they would be a little afraid to expose what was hidden under the saddle, right? When there's an imminent death threat that's attached to it. But brothers and sisters, my closing thought is, why would you ever live with that fear? Jesus is not Laban. Jesus is not looking to expose you. He's looking to heal you. Jesus is not looking to chase you down and punish you like Laban did. He's looking to chase you down like the father and the prodigal son that he might be gracious to you and slay the fatted calf for you and put his signet ring on your finger and wrap you in his festal robes and throw a party on your behalf. When Jesus chases you down, it's because he is releasing the hounds of heaven on you because he's in love with you. He's not Laban who's coming after to be able to enact retribution. He enacted that retribution on himself so that when he chases you down, you might receive the wounds of grace. Romans 5, the text that Pastor Lee read earlier, says that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. We're told that Jesus did not come for the healthy, that he came for the sick. We're told that Jesus is a friend of sinners. So he already knows our hearts. So why continue to be burdened by something that he already knows? Something he already forgave. Something he already paid for. Something that already, while you were at your worst, Romans 5.8 says that he set his mark upon you to love you. So if he loved you while you're at your worst, why bury things underneath the saddle and make it appear as if you're at your best when you know otherwise? What are you afraid of? Brothers and sisters, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's the gospel. That's the whole point of the gospel. You don't have to keep running from things like they ran from Laban. Our God is not repelled by sinners. He enjoyed their company. He ate and dined with them and broke bread. He died for sinners. Why be afraid to allow a God of infinite grace and mercy to come in and see the thing that you have hidden under the saddle? What are you afraid of? There is one similarity between Jesus and Laban. I thought this was pretty cool. Both of them pursued and chased down something that was taken from them in an effort to get it back. Except for Jesus, you were the thing that was taken from him by sin. And instead of demanding repayment by Laban, he became the repayment. Rather than demand retribution, he took your retribution 
Rather than being jealous to regain his riches, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10 says he can't wait until he can lavish all of his riches upon you. He's not looking to chase you down to get back what was his. He's chasing you down to give you what is his. So a couple of reflection questions as we close. Have you allowed fears of legitimate gripes to give you a license to respond to something in a way that's contrary to God's best for you? Have you stopped trusting God's way and taken matters into your own hands? Have you ever given the appearance of wanting to be searched only to just keep burying things deeper underneath the surface? If all of what I shared is true, then brothers and sisters, let me close by asking you, why would you have to be like Rachel and make excuses and keep things hidden under the saddle? Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, including that thing that you think that you can't share, but he already knows, and we could bring it to the light of day. So as I close, I want to ask you what I asked you before. Would you pray the prayer? Search me. Know my heart, O oh God. I know you're gracious. I know that whatever you find in there, you've already died for. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Can you say, try me and know my anxious thoughts? Lord, I know what they are. You know what they are. Can you give me the strength to reveal them today? And Lord, would you lead me in the everlasting way? In Jesus' name, amen.